So by that Sunday, no money in my pocket, not, nothing was made and everything, but I had a treasure trove of new knowledge that I was able to put forth and use. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes, not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics from the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Cologne. Under the Mask Podcast, episode 26. You know, in my time writing and marketing, I've noticed a lot of overlap between the fans of comic books and fans of wrestling. If that sounds like you, this is an episode you don't want to miss. My guest today is the owner and founder of Exigency Studios, and he's the writer and artist on several comic books featuring super-powered wrestlers, Primetime Saturday Night, and AWF. His latest project is a 10th anniversary edition of his very first published comic, Amazonia No. 1. An Amazon cop looks for redemption by saving her hometown from the grips of a madman. Amazonia is live on Kickstarter now through October 17th. Go check it out by going to Kickstarter and typing Amazonia in the search field or by clicking our handy link in the show notes. I'd like to introduce Joe McPhee. Hey, well, Joe, uh, the first thing I'm going to do, like I do with all my guests, I want you to tell us a little bit about your story. Who are you and how did you get to be here today? Who am I? I'm just an average guy who enjoyed comic books back as a kid. And eventually, you know, through high school and stuff, I just kept drawing superheroes, drawing superheroes. And then after graduating high school, went into the military, you know, tried to continue to develop the stuff that I did in high school and just fell out of it. Came out of the military, went to college, met up with some buddies from high school who was still at, you know, at the same college that I was. They got me back into going to comic book conventions and everything. They saw that I was still kind of sort of writing and still drawing and convinced me to try to go professional. And then eventually, you know, one day I was like, I was ready to go ahead and put forth my first book to really, you know, put it out there, put it out there. And everybody else wasn't ready. So I took it upon myself to just draw the very first issue of Amazonia and went from there. So that's kind of like the short version of how I am and where, how I started and how I got here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long have you been making comics for? Uh, since 2008. So 2008 was, uh, December 2008 was the actual launch date for Amazonia was the first printing of that came out. And uh, I believe it was March of 20, uh, 2009 was the very first convention that uh, Amazonia number one was premiered at but uh, before amazonia were you making comics uh just that you hadn't published or uh did you just go into it with amazonia oh uh, actually i was developing comic book ideas back in high school i had a couple of 
high school art teachers that kind of fanned the flames of doing that because they saw that I like drawing comic book type stuff. So I was developing stuff back then, but never, you know, took the chance to just go ahead and go full bore and just put anything out there until after I got out of the military where I actually was like going to school and actually had other people that was helping me develop those talents to the point where I could do something professionally. Of course, to get those comics out in the world, you founded Exigency Studios. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Um, Exigency Studios came about mainly because of the need to become incorporated because I did that shortly after issue number three of Amazonia came out and issue one and two of AWF coming out. And that was just for self-protection because as a sole proprietor, there's a lot of legalities that you have to deal with as far as what if you uh, libel somebody, you know, what, what if what if you slander somebody with somebody claims that you have their likeness up in the book and they decide to sue. I mean, it was just so many things coming coming back and forth one way or the other. And then I just thought, go ahead and incorporate. Originally, I was just thinking about just doing an LLC. And then I met up with a lawyer. We talked about everything that I was trying to do. He said, no, don't do the LLC. Do a subchapter S. And ever since then, I became a subchapter S corporation here in Illinois. What made you start making your own comics and publishing them through your own studio? Uh, I got actually had a couple of great ideas that I knew for a fact that most publishers would not be into, to be quite honest. And then for the fact that I didn't have a name in the industry, I was like just some at that time, some, you know, aging 20 year old with a, with a pipe dream and everything, you know, not wanting to, you know, have my feelings hurt by major publishers. It's like, you know, going through the rejection, 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 rejection type process. Uh, I had a couple of friends who always did like the uh, RS Alley brought me into RS Alley and everything and I met up with other people who was, you know, self-producing and I kind of learned for them about the process about who to go to to get the books printed, how to go about formatting and stuff, the different things to go to go that route and I just went for it. I actually, to be quite honest, Amazonia was not the series that was supposed to launch CGC Studios. It was supposed to be in Last Line of Defense, which was supposed to be in the first title, but I decided on Amazonia for a different reason. Um, I know when I started up Y Comics, I said, we're going to have four different titles that are going to be up. One is going to be our flagship, and then we're going to have another three series of ongoing. And uh, when I got into actually doing the brass tacks, how that changed because it's so tough just doing one and I could, there's no way that I could sustain doing four different series all at once. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're trying to do it monthly or, or bi-monthly, it's too much work, way too much work, but at least I'm surviving right now with creating three on my own as of right now and getting them out at least, you know, at least one issue out per series, at least a year. The only thing that I fell short on is the AWF series. And that's only because I was not drawing it. And then the person who was drawing that book also started publishing her own comic, which was up under our banner. And I'm waiting for her to finish up with issue number two. So it pushed that, you know, that series further to the back burner, but we always kept it, you know, no, no less than three titles going on at the, at one time. So it's been kind of like a juggling act in that aspect here. And speaking of AWF, I was just going to say that uh, Exigency, you're probably most well-known for your wrestling comics featuring uh, statuesque women, AWF and primetime Saturday night. 
tell us a little bit more about those series. Well, okay. The original AWS series was developed in this way. It was developed as, as in a way to bring back pro wrestling into comic books. Uh, I'm not certain if most people remember the Marvel Comics thing. And in Marvel Comics, they used to have been like a Marvel two-in-one where the thing, you know, went off on his own for a bit and he was doing all these separate adventures and everything. And in this one story arc dealing with Project Pegasus, they introduced the idea of the grapplers, which was four female wrestlers that was, a, you know, that was supposed to be a part of this quote unquote um, wrestling federation that was not really mentioned as to be in the Marvel Universe. And they made their appearance in that story arc for Project Pegasus. And later on down the line, when the thing actually got his own short lived series back in the 1980s, they developed that into a story arc dealing with the power broker that there was a wrestling federation called the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation that had nothing but superpower wrestlers in that federation. And it was like a legitimate wrestling federation, which was, uh, you know, uh, which was kind of, uh, how can I say, uh, kind of like under uh, undercover operation for the power broker. And one of the things that they had was they redeveloped the grapplers there as to be the female wrestling faction that was there. And one of the storylines there is that there was like a murder that happened amongst one of their members and pretty much their leader took it out on the thing and the thing allowed allowed her to win a battle of the genders match and, you know, just to kind of calm her down and this, that, and the other. But eventually it they did expose that the power broker was behind a lot of other stuff that was going on that was kind of like devious and a lot of people had to either A, give up their power and B, learn how to live with it without being addicted to it. Making a long story short, getting back to primetime Saturday night, I kind of took that raw idea and melded it into uh, a thing within AWF where the people did not know that they did, that they had superpowers, that they were just naturally, you know, they thought that they were just naturally gifted that way. And the Wrestling Federation itself was a training ground for the next breed of superheroes. Um, with the background story being that way, a lot of people who read the first four issues were saying that there was not enough pro wrestling up in it. So I appeased them by coming out with the primetime Saturday night book, which deals with the actual in-ring pro wrestling, giving it to them in a WWE or AEW format. It's pretty much from beginning to end of that book. You, you, it's more or less you watching a pro wrestling show. It has a full card anywhere between four to five matches each issue. But it also drives up the page count to somewhere between 50 to 50, uh, 50 to 54, 58 pages per issue. So it's, it's, it's worthwhile of a read. And that's the reason why it's probably more popular than the parent series. You might be able to bring some insight to this because just in my time doing comic conventions and in comics, there seems to be a lot of crossover between comic fans and wrestling fans. Why do you think that is? Take a look at the story arcs. You have good guys and bad guys. And I mean, that's the basics for most general superhero comics. You got good guys and bad guys. The bad guys do something devious or have some type of devious plot. And you have good guys that always try to stop, stop them from having their way. I mean, it's just the simple balance of how their storytelling matches up or seems parallel to what is in most comic books. 
Yeah, and I always thought too, both superheroes and wrestlers, at least wrestlers that I really remember when I was growing up and really into wrestling, which was, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, those guys, they're just such bigger than life personas. And they have the physiques to match. They're basically real life superheroes. In, in a way, yes. And and they was always built to be that way based upon the storylines that they that they were always about. I mean, think about it. You think of Hulk Hogan always having to defeat the Iron Sheik. Why? Because the Iron Sheik is controlling the oil and keeping our gas prices high in the United States. And our American hero Hulk Hogan has to defeat him in the square circle to prove once and for once and for all that the United States is never one. Those are the type of, you know, superhero story arcs that we was getting back then. You know, the, you know, the over, you know, the over dramatic Patriot, you know, Patriot versus, you know, the foreign enemy or somebody who is just generally a rotten guy to everybody, you know, in the audience or just in general being beat up by the nice squeaky clean friendly guy. You know, that's, that's the way pro wrestling has always been, you know, from the 1960s and even to now the story the storylines might change a bit but the overall tropes are still there and speaking of over-the-top characters over-the-top muscle-bound characters the reason you're here obviously we're celebrating your 10th year anniversary of your very first published comic which is amazonia and it's live on kickstarter right now Uh, you can go check it out just by going to kickstarter if you type in amazonia it'll be the first thing that pops up tell us about amazonia well the quick dirty version of amazonia if you want the elevator pitch here is that you have a superhero by the name of elisa matt that's coming back to her hometown after being away for seven years. The reason why she was away for seven years is back in her high school days, she was arrested for murder, which eventually got overturned after they found out that it was more in self-defense and that she did not incite the actual violence that led up to it. But as a precaution, because of her powers and her stature, they sent her away to this one government training program to master her abilities and everything. So eventually, after serving seven years as a superhero, she decides to give up the superhero lifestyle to try to do something normal. But because of her size and her stature, it will be kind of a little bit hard to live a normal life. So she comes back as a SWAT team commander for her local police department and tries to live a normal life. However, by the time she gets back, the town is being ran by a maniacal businessman and he has his fingers in everything and she's trying to uncover why the city is bowing down to this maniacal madman. So it's kind of like one of those, if I could put it put it to you this way, it's almost like kind of like one of those Jessica Jones type mystery type books. What was the original inspiration for it? Uh, the original inspiration came actually from a couple of things, but mostly from Wonder Woman, to be quite honest here. Uh, more specifically, the Amazon attack series, which which led up to the idea that there was more than one culture for Amazon. And to me, that really opened up the door for going back and revisiting another uh, one shot that was done by Stan Lee, that was written by Stan Lee in the Just Imagine series where he did Wonder Woman up under the uh, Aztec sun god culture, which was very, very interesting. So with that in mind, I went back and thought about, you know, which cultures have not truly been, you know, utilized and everything. So I I went with the Mayan culture, dealing with the Mayan culture and everything. And the fact that 
at least as of right now, does not know about her mother's side of the family. Um, that's going to be a story arc within itself. That's why I'm really hype, hyped up to get through this first story arc where I can actually start telling about that cultural aspect of the Mayan side of her heritage. What issue of Amazonia are you on right now? Um, I'm currently drawing issue number seven, believe it or not. Most people think it's like, well, you're kickstarting for issue number one, but the reason why we're kickstarting for issue number one is, is as an apology to those who back the original issue number six because we successfully um, ran a Kickstarter campaign for issue number six and a lot of people was wondering it's like where's the first five issues and not thinking clearly as a publisher I was thinking well we always have to kickstart for where we're at right now instead of thinking about the whole series as a bigger broader topic um, we're taking the time now up under the 10th anniversary to relaunch the whole serial on Kickstarter starting from issue number one the good thing about that is that it's going to force me to redraw issue number two to have a remastered version of issue number two and then we're going to move in sequential order from there we might skip over issue number six again we might do another kickstarter cover for it but we probably skip over that when we get to issue number six but we're, we're, we're still going to follow the normal suit after issue number one here so that's the reason why we're doing this special 10th anniversary um kickstarter to relaunch everything from the very beginning that way we don't leave anybody behind yeah and, th- and that's an interesting concept because you already have the six issues out but you mm-hmm. see like you said your first kickstarter that you ran was for amazonia number six that is correct and uh, presumably it had some catch-up tiers that you had the first uh people were able to get the first ones as well yes we have to understand that one thing about it is that most people won't invest in six issues if they have no idea what the series is about and no matter how much you tell them they will always want to check the first issue out to see if they like it. Yeah. And now that you're coming back through, I was just, it kind of was a follow-up question I was going to ask, but it sounds like after this one successful and it, from seeing it, you were, you were very close or it just got funded for issue one, right? Uh, we're at the doorstep here. If we don't hit it tonight, I got an extra kind of uh print that's going to come out tomorrow morning advertising it. And I hope that people get a good chuckle out of it and put us over, over the top here. So uh, just to clarify, uh, if somebody's never heard of Amazonia, this is a great jumping on point. But what is so special about this 10th anniversary edition? What's special about this 10th anniversary edition is because we're re-releasing the original issue number one that was done back in 2008. Now, that's a story within itself here because Amazonia was almost canceled. I almost stopped doing it. You know, we got to uh, issue number three back in 2010. And it wasn't doing all that well. And I was trying to figure out at shows and everything, what can we do to get people more involved in Amazonia? Because at comic book conventions, the AWF series was just killing it. Nobody was paying attention to Amazonia at all. So, you know, I, w- I was asking around what I could do more, how it was like, what, you know, something different that I could could have done or anything like that. And most people saying, no, you know, everything is perfectly fine with the series. You know, it just made me not be, you know, everybody's cup of tea and whatnot. But eventually, you know, I was getting asked about, well, why don't you just go with digital and this, that, and the other and see what was happening there. I was like, well, I don't know. I don't think places like Comixology and stuff want my books and everything like that. So a uh, veteran in the industry, uh, Rusty Gillian, 
thanks to him, he actually convinced me to go ahead and submit to comicsology. Now I'm up here thinking based upon, you know, what I've, what I've done at shows as far as uh, what I submitted, because I submitted both AWF and um, Amazonia at the same time. So I'm expecting them coming back to say, yeah, we want Amazonia, you know, this, you know, we're going to approve that for our platform and everything like that. And lo and behold, uh, a couple of months later, I get an email from Comixology and they said, you know, Joe, we want your Amazonia series, but there's one catch here. You have to redraw issue number one to fit our format. There's a lot of things that are wrong that that doesn't fit our format, but we want the Amazonia series. We want to cover all three issues. Are you willing to redo issue number one? And I, I was like elated and everything. And I sat there and, you know, I kind of like jumped for joy, cried and did everything else. And it's like, unlike how most other individuals are, I took the chance. I went ahead and redrew issue number one. And from that point forward, after we got to Comixology, I started to see that uptick for the Amazonia series. And the more issues that we kept producing, the more people started latching on to it. And one of the cool things that did happen is that when I went to my very first New York Comic Con, I took 30 copies of each issue of Amazonia and we were sold out of it by Saturday afternoon. And ever since then, I've just been more along the lines. It's like people are seeing it. People are seeing seeing the, the series for what it is. It's, it's a good series. And I can't say no more, no less. I was like, I have to thank those people who saw something up in it. That reminds me of something. I had just spoken with Russell Nolte of uh, Wannabe Press and well, obviously Russell's. Russell, who I believe is very successful just doing independent comics and as an independent author. And he said something about uh, Ichabod Jones, his his book, Ichabod Jones. He said it took a long time for Ichabod Jones to find its audience. Uh, do you feel that sort of similar with Amazonia? Yes. And I also think about one other thing. Think about The Walking Dead. It took the creator of Walking Dead about 10 to 12 years before it blew up the way that it did with the television series, the comic books really flying off the shelves and everything. It took him to about a decade for that to happen. So, yeah, it does take a long while, especially for things that actually do have good legs up under it to find the audience to keep going. And that's definitely something with The Walking Dead that I always point out uh, almost to Every comics creator that I know, every indie creator that I know is you never know what's going to be that next series that the popular zeitgeist gets behind. I remember hearing probably five or six years ago about uh, My Hero Academia, uh, a little manga at the time. It's just uh, people were saying, hey, Bill, you would really like it. It seems right up your alley. And then next thing you know, the television show came out and I saw My Hero Academia everywhere. Again, it's just a matter of just keep pushing, keep chugging, you know, keep your current audience happy and keep pushing. That's pretty much all that you can do, you know. The more you write, the more you create, the more you develop, the better off that you are. Now, there are some, some advantages that other people have. Like, for example, you know, I have a nine to five job, so I'm not at home constantly, you know, pumping out new issues. So I have to do this kind of like on a part time basis. Would I like doing it full time? 
Sure, but bills got to get paid. You can't you just like you got to keep things going the best way that you can. And I do put like a lot more skin into the game than most people would do as a whole to get their books out. So, you know, I, I, I pretty much I'm looking at it from this standpoint. My nine to five job pretty much pays for me to do what I'm doing with the comics where I can actually make that transition over to 100 percent completely comics if the revenue is there. Yeah, and especially now in the uh, 2020, the uh, the year of COVID. It's, uh, I mean, I last saw you at, uh, we talked the last time when I was actually on your on yeah. your live stream mm-hmm. about how I hadn't seen you since C2E2. And that was uh, the, uh, the end of February and the first day of March. Exactly. And, you know, we were seeing, you know, not to go back and be negative, but we saw the slow, slow coming of everything that's happening that uh, is happening now about all the shutdowns and everything because it's like subtly, subtly it's like we're seeing you know travel bans and all this other stuff and people worrying about oh how I'm going to get to this convention if they do shut down travel you know how how are people internationally going to deal with this and it's like what about you know this and what about that and people were up here it's like Ooh, we're glad that at least C2E2 happened this year because people were getting kind of worried about are they going to shut down C2E2 at the last second I think C2E2 was affected by COVID uh, attendance wise. It definitely seemed like there was less attendees there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the year before and the year before that they, o- they opened the doors uh, Saturday and Sunday. That floor was packed. And when they opened the doors Saturday and Sunday, yes, there was a lot of people, but it just seemed like the floor was not as packed. It was so much uncertainty. It was so much uncertainty because they were up here. It's like, is it really here in the United States? Is it really here already? It, it, do people have have it if people have it who has it are there anybody internationally here you know from an international correspondence here if so do they have it you know nobody knew what to really expect and you know this was the first time that first convention that we were overly 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 you know hand sanitizer disinfecting wise we was always wiping down stuff it's like we just didn't know well, we talked a lot about COVID, um, and I wanted to follow up with that kind of theme. What have been the biggest obstacles or challenges that you've had to overcome in your creative career? Self-doubt, to be quite honest. And the reason I have to say self-doubt is because you kind of go through a lot of stuff, and it's like you have faith in what you're putting out there, but also at the same time, you don't know who's really looking at it. There's times where you go, periods that you go through, you put out the next print or the next pencil page and everything, and you see that nobody's saying anything about it or no likes or no, you know, no comments or anything like that. And then, you know, go two or three weeks and put something else out and then people are just, you know, ranting and raving over it. It's like you never know anything. So you kind of get into your own head. It's like, it's the stuff that I'm really doing really good enough to keep people's attention or, you know, are people really truly fans of mine one way or the other? And you just have to go by ear, just say, I, I do what I do because I love it more so than looking for that like or that comment or anything like that. 
a quick little story here, and I, I hope that my my team doesn't doesn't um, get mad at me here. Um, just last night, just last night, it's like dealing with the self doubt and everything. You know, we were talking about um, the Kickstarter and where we're at at the Kickstarter and everything. And you have to understand, my colorist um, Christine um, Bronson, you know, done many different uh, publications that um, Amazing Age out of uh, Alternative Comics. Uh, she has her own book, um, Undead Norm, and Bittersweet Sentinels that she's doing with J.D. Uh, Benefield. Uh, my editor, Elaine Haygood, uh, she has a novel out there on Kindle called The Enslaved. She's done a lot of screenwriting in, in her career and everything. And I'm sitting up there and I was like, you know, the whole thing is it's like, but guys, I kept going. That's the thing. The difference between not having a successful campaign or anything is not the fact that I have one. It's just the more along the lines. I kept going despite myself, doubt, despite everything. And I even told them out of all three of us, I feel like I'm the Ringo star of the group. I'm not the lead person, even though it, it may, I may be the president of the company and, and I hire you, but I'm not the, you know, I feel truly feel that I'm not the lead person. I'm not the, headliner people not really coming to see me people are coming to see the collective work of all of us and you know i truly honestly believe that you know to a greater degree because it's not just about me it's not just about either one of them it's the collective work that we put together uh, but i remember hearing about an art school and the seniors in art school graduated Someone had come and said, hey, well, you know, understand, you know, a lot of you are in different levels for art school. A lot of your your art is at different levels. The most talented of you probably will not survive in the art field. It's going to be the person who gets rejected and rejected and rejected and keeps getting a little better and a little better and perseveres. And then after that 100th rejection gets that acceptance letter because there's a lot of rejection in the art world. Do you feel that's kind of true? Yes, I feel that that is very true because I see people who are more talented than I am that's that's out here, especially with penciling and drawing more talented than I am, you know, they get the attention, they get the, the, you know, they get the people, you know, in the door to look at their work. But when it comes down to being able to develop and work with a team and everything to that magnitude, they kind of fall short. So it's a lot of rejection in the long run. But the thing about it is like, if you keep persevering, you keep the attitude of always wanting to learn, always wanting to get better, people will eventually come and they will flock and they will stay. Joe, creatively, what has been your biggest mistake? My biggest mistake is pretty much creatively. I I believe it's not being as open to certain topics like I should be. And the reason I have to say that, because it's like, uh, for example, I had some people asking me to write all ages books, but I'm up there like, well, I don't know. I don't think I really fit into the all ages writing type category. Why would you write fantasy? Well, I'm not that deep into fantasy myself. But, you know, I don't think I could come up with a good story beyond some of the stereotypical type stuff. So I don't want to do it. And and that limits to your factor of growth here as a whole here. So that's would be like my biggest mistake. It's not the fact that I can't do it. It's the more of along the lines that I'm making a conscious choice not to do it, at least not yet, because of uncomfortability in that in those genres. It's like not not having like a passion in those genres is the reason why I don't do it. 
And on the other side of that coin, what has been your best moment creatively or as a publisher? Receiving letters from fans, especially from a 12 year old that's a fan of Amazonian out of blue, you know, talking about how how much she loved the book and how she was learning from the book and everything that magnitude and looking forward to the next issue and everything that magnitude. So that that has to be kind of the most rewarding reward any publisher or any creator can have with when you actually touch the lives of, of younger people. That's an interesting dichotomy coming off the answer saying, oh, I, I'm not really open to writing all ages stuff, at least now. And then hearing that you can receive the letter from the fans that was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I, it's just weird. It's just weird because, like I said, the book uh, Amazonia is made for 13 and up. But a lot of topics and stuff is, is written for 13 and up, but it, it's relevant to 12 year olds or preteens too. And it's not done in a way where it's overly graphical, where you can't have a 12 year old read it. And I always allow parents to say, hey, here, this is what's in the book. This is what we're, what's going on. And I allow them to see the book. And I will even tell them in certain issues, you may not want this because we have blood here. We got blood in this one. But everything else is just, you know, it is what it is. I feel a lot of times when I'm pitching Kinetic to a family with a younger kid and uh, they'll, I, I always make sure to point out, I say, hey, look, I rated a T for teen, but there's no overt gore. There's no sex in there. There's nothing that you're really going to show a nine or 10 year old that I think the parents are going to write me a nasty note and say, hey, what are you showing these kids? But I always make sure to say that because it's the person that I don't say that to who actually will write an nasty note back to me. But most of the time I get a response. Oh, no, it's fine. My kid's seen Deadpool. See, I don't get that because we're dealing with female characters here. So I have parents who come and look at like the artwork that advertised the series. And mind you, I have different artists draw the main character and each artist had their own representation of the character and they would go into the more sexualized version of it. And it's like, no, I don't want my kid to have that. And I was like, no, look at the book before you make your decision. And I hand them a copy of the issue and they look at the issue. It's like, oh, okay. And it's like, why is it so different? It's like, because it's 13 and up. It's like, there's certain things that are so eye-catching that is standard that I have no control over it as far as the artist's creativity behind it. But when it comes to the book that I draw, I make certain that it fits a certain mold. You know, we're not up here trying to do the scantically clad type stuff each and every issue where people are clothed. It, it, it actually flows more or less like a television show. And when they see that, it's like, oh, okay, I could I could see myself getting into this. Is it as like I I actually advise them is not maybe not be ready for your you know twelve or thirteen year old, but maybe your 15, 16 year old can relate to it. Your seventeen year old can relate to it more so. But it's I want to exclude that from them outside of maybe the first couple of issues where you have to deal with a couple of scenes where you have to deal with blood or or the fact that the character was getting dressed or something to that. And I always felt children too for as little credit as we seem to give them as adults we kind of look down on children and say oh you know it's a child i always thought that it's kind of silly putting an age cut off on something exactly i mean my my if i could say my gripe about this is more so the parent than the actual child because the parent 
chooses to shield their children from certain aspects. It's not the fact that a child would not understand that a person is getting dressed, you know, especially, you know, they at that point, they don't really make a major difference between men and women unless you overly go out your way to make the difference. Like, for example, seeing seeing a, uh, a, a man getting dressed and seeing a woman getting dresses, you know, depending on the culture that you're in, it should be equivalent. But here in the United States, it's not. And you have to kind of respect that level where that person is at. The person who don't want to see it, you have to allow them and be upfront and honest. Like, hey, it's there. You may not like it. You may not want your kid to see it, but it's there. You make the decision. I'm not going to say, oh, it's okay for now. I was like, no, you make the decision. It's not a decision for me to make for your kid. It's more of a decision that you as a parent, knowing your child, if your child is mature enough to understand the difference and that it's not done in a sexual way. And that's the other, that's the second gripe. People worry too much about what is sexy. A person could be in a sweatsuit, in the most frumpiest sweatsuit ever, and it can still be deemed as sexy. So you can't just say because a person does not have X, Y, and Z on that they're, that they're X, Y, and Z. You can't do that. Sexy is left to the eye of the beholder. And uh, one thing before we move on, I wanted to add uh, another thing that's great. And I think this was a Grant Morrison quote was, you know, as adults, we get so wrapped up with, oh, well, you know, why with we get wrapped up with canon and why something is this way in a comic book. Why can Superman fly under the yellow sun? But if his molecular structure is super dense, wouldn't he way more than the average human and little things like that we get caught up in when the simple fact is if you ask a child that they'll answer with the correct response which is well it's made up it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) make-believe exactly it's like why are you upset at a image that is imaginary somebody thought this up it's not real you know that's that's the key thing i mean you know, the overly muscle bound man is not real, but most women don't have any problems with it. But when it comes to seeing images like more like them, you know, you have some problems, you know, and vice versa. You know, it's not just it's not just a one way direction. It's just more along the lines that you have to come back down to the fact that it's imaginary. This is not real. Yes, writing this stuff, we do take some things into, you know, into uh, aspects of reality, the plausibility of something happening, but it's imaginary. The imagery and everything is truly imaginary. It's supposed to be an escape. Joe, what advice would you give to someone starting out who wants to do what you do? If they want to do it the way that I do it is don't give in to fear. Do it. That's one of the reasons why I always try to keep a copy of the original Amazonian number one on hand. I tell people it's like, look, look at every comic book that's out there as of right now. This is where I started from. I started from this book. This book does not look like a standard comic book. This this book does not look like it was drawn by a professional. And then I grab, you know, my current issue. This is how it looks now. People love seeing you grow. So just start. Don't be afraid. Just start. Just put it out there. Get around people who are willing to help you. And as you learn and grow, the end results is going to be there. So just don't be afraid. Just go out there. Do it. I guess it's time for another story here. Let's set the Wayback Machine to what? 2009, I want to say 
May 2009. That was during the time of Anime Central. Now, most people will be discouraged about this, but I want to tell it like it is. May 2009, three-day convention, Anime Central was, you know, teamed up with the, with the same buddy that I told you about earlier. We got an RS Alley table, shared it. Buddies making money hand over fist. That whole weekend, I did not make a dime. And people were up here. I was like, you know, I had the book, had my Amazonian book there and everything. Nobody's really giving it a second thought and everything, you know, not showing that I'm frustrated or anything. I actually kept doing more and more artwork and everything to that magnitude. Still not selling anything. That was mine. Sold a lot of stuff for my buddy. My stuff was not going. Um, by, you know, midday that Saturday, that's when I started learning about what more I could actually do for the comic books and who, who I need to start talking to and, you know, things to kind of make it more appealing to people. You know, people, you know, it's not like the people didn't like the idea of what I was trying to do, it was just more along the lines of it wasn't like you said, as polished as what most people would think of, or if it was good enough, it's not, it was not in the format that they could recognize instantly to say, Oh, I could, you know, I could actually read this or I could actually, you know, see, see myself into it. So by that Sunday, no money in my pocket, no, nothing was made and everything, but I had a treasure trove of new knowledge that I was able to put forth and use to further the creation of Amazonia. So bottom line is, it's not about the money. It's not about whether something is successful or a failure off of one show. It's about learning how to take what you got on a weekend, whether it be networking with new people, meeting with new artists that want to help you out, you know, learning new things here, seeing what actually works, paying attention to see what actually works at a convention goes a long way. You know, everything is not about dollars and cents. It's more about what are you learning to make yourself better as as either a writer, artist, even a showman. Because at that point, you're actually presenting your work. You're more of a showman at that point. So even learning techniques there in that aspect and people teaching you certain things about, hey, don't slump over. Don't let them see that you're discouraged and stuff like that goes a long way in, in everything that you do at a convention. So I always, I always, you know, I don't really talk about that convention that much unless I get, unless I see somebody that I know for a fact that's like, you know, they're, they're down and they look like they're about to get ready to cry or something like that. I always tell them that story because I've been through it. I've been through that muck and mire where I made nothing, zero. That, that is a ego killer. But you get, you have to understand you can't let your ego get to you. You have to learn what is going on around you and why things are happening in the way that, that, that they are. Yeah. I don't think there's a single artist that I know artist or creator who has not had a bad show. And, and it happens. And like you said, going from show to show, especially if you travel, it's like if people don't know you, they have to learn to like you. That's one of the aspects that you have to learn. But with this being more of a local show and I have done that show prior, that was not like really just a bad show. It was just more along the lines. It was like disaster <laughs> in that case. It was disaster, but it was not a disaster based upon anything that I was doing wrong. It was just more along the line. Things were not set up properly conducive for what I was trying to do. It was more set up conducively for what my buddy was doing with the art prints and everything to that magnitude. And understanding that aspect goes a long, long, long way. 
Uh, Amazonia is live now on Kickstarter. When's the campaign over? Campaign is over. I believe it's October 18th at 11 o'clock. More specifically, 11.02 Central Daylight Time. We are live until then. Uh, to check out Amazonia, go on kickstarter.com. Type in Amazonia in the search. It'll bring it right up. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. Where else can we find you online? Uh, you can find me online on Facebook at Joe D. McPhee or through our Facebook page at, for Exigency Studios. That is X-I-G-E-N-C-Y Studios. Or you could go to um, DeviantArt. My DeviantArt name there is Silverbolt14. That's S-I-L-V as in Victor, E-R-B as in Baker, O-L-T-14. On Instagram is Silbolt, S-I-L-V as in Victor. Victor, B.S. and Baker, O-L-T. And you can also catch us on um, our YouTube channel, which um, Bill already mentioned from the Desso Small Press Publisher. I do do some live streams every now and then. Um, my next one should be this Thursday because I just got asked for by somebody that wanted to come on to the show. So we're going to go ahead and do so as uh, on Thursday. Uh, we're going to talk about a cool new arcade bar that's opening up near where I'm at here. So that's going to be cool. And he's, you know, throwing an homage to comic books with in that bar so I'm one you know I'm curious about how he feels about certain things and everything to that magnitude and the combination of arcades and and, and um, bars and comic books you know all of that being in one mix and we'll be sure to add all the links in the description and the show notes Joe thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me it's been a pleasure it's always been a pleasure and you know you have a home here at the uh, from the Death Row Small Press Publishing if you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, drop us a line at underthemaskshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Y Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off.